There have been a lot of great hockey players over the years. Legends, both on and off the ice. The Overtime Podcast checks in with some of hockey's biggest names and talks about what these great players are up to today. Welcome to the Overtime Podcast. Here's your host, Gino Retta. Hey, hockey fans, welcome to the 7-Eleven Overtime Podcast. I'm Gino Retta. You know, I've spent over four decades working in this game, fortunate enough to meet some of the legends of the game, saw them come into the league, watched them shine in the game, and now they've moved on to life after playing hockey. The 7-Eleven Overtime Podcast gives us a chance to catch up, tell some great stories, relive some great memories, and hear what they're up to today. Today's NHL legend, a Stanley Cup champion. When he retired, he was the highest-scoring left winger in NHL history, a Hockey Hall of Famer, voted as one of the top 100 players of all time, currently the president of the LA Kings, Mr. Luke Robitaille. Luke, welcome to the show. Great to catch up with you again, my friend. Hello. How are you, my friend? Excellent. Here are a couple of hot, tasty ways to crush the crave. Download the 7Now delivery app, and 7-Eleven will have your hot and delicious Crave Crushers to your door almost before you can say, Fuel me up, Sev. You know the Crave I'm talking about. The one that's whispering, Wings, or Pizza, in your ear, right now. For just eleven sixty nine, order a large, hot-from-the-oven-in-minutes pepperoni pizza. Add a 2-liter Coke or Pepsi for $2. 7-Eleven is your go-to for fast delivery of Slurpee, groceries, essentials, meals, snack and treats, 24-7. Luke, I, I loved watching you play. I loved what you did, but you were you were like, you snuck up the all-time rankings to a point where there were times where I was like, oh my God, there's only 12 guys in NHL history that have more goals than you. And that list includes Gretzky, Ovi, Howe, Yager, Mario Lemieux. Does it ever just land on you the fact that you're up there amongst the greatest goal scorers in the history of this game. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny because until I played my last year junior, I thought of myself as a playmaker. And, and <laughs> I was always trying to make passes. And then uh, one player taught me how to shoot and how to get out of position myself. And and uh, I don't think I ever realize where things are and so forth. Sometimes I think I'm, I'm like, man, if I wouldn't have screwed that up during that time, I might have gotten more, you know, I was always trying to get better every day. I still think that way. So, you know, I, it, it, it certainly is like, uh, I'm, I'm very happy I got to play in the NHL, you know, all this time. And, uh, you know, I, I still remember the day someone asked me that I was two goals away from passing the rocket Richard because <laughs> it was a rocket back home. So I'm very, I don't know. I think like, um, I think I was lucky to do what I did, and I don't really think of it that way. You know? Luke, you weren't lucky, man. You had eight straight 40-plus goal seasons, two 50-goal seasons. You're a top 100 player uh, of all time. I don't I, I don't know, Luke. I don't think lucky, even though your nickname is Lucky Luke, there, luck doesn't seem to fall into it from my perspective. No, you, you got to work hard at it. I, I did work hard at every day. Like, I, you know, like uh, – I've, I was kind of crazy. Sometimes I'll talk with my wife and my kids and I thank them because I feel I was very selfish when I was a player because everything was around getting ready for the next game. Yeah. And even in the summer, once we started knowing about training and so forth, was getting ready for the next season. And it was an everyday thing for me, whether it was extra rest or whether it was like eating early, going to bed early. Like I, I literally focused on getting better every single day. I wasn't good every day but I know I was ready the best I could do 
for the next game at all time. And that's probably why over time I ended up like putting up good numbers and so forth, because my next game I always felt was, could be my last. Yeah. All right. Here's something that, that kind of rings true with me. And I don't know if it rings true with you. So let me ask you this. I find it funny in talking to some of the younger players. Now they just really don't have any idea of what came before maybe last generation or their current generation. They've kind of lost track of it, but sometimes you get reminded. So March of 2022, Alex Ovechkin passes you to become the highest scoring left winger in NHL history, which then of course gets everybody talking about Luke Robitaille because you're the guy that he just passed. Did you find that some people were saying, holy crap, I didn't know Luke Robitaille had done that. I didn't realize that he had done this stuff that only Alex Ovechkin has now done. Uh, I, you know, I, I, the dads, it always comes from the dads or the grandpas now. They all seem to know. <laughs> so I see them. I think young kids don't know. They, the only thing that's good for me is like a, I've been kind of – even some kids like to play the old video games. So I was a glitch on one of on a couple of the video games. So they know my name because of that, I think, more than the fact that I was a player. But, uh, yeah, you're right. I think players in today's game, they, they're so focused on what they do, you know, and I don't think they, they, they even have time sometimes to look back and to see – what some guys have done, but uh, you know, so far, like, because there's still enough grandpas and dads out there, like it, I don't see it too often. <laughs> All right, so then let's remind them we're in conversation with Luke Robitaille, Hockey Hall of Famer, Stanley Cup champion, now president of the LA Kings. This is the Seven Eleven Overtime Podcast. I'm your host, Gino Retta. Uh, Luke, everybody remembers 1993 as the year that Wayne Gretzky led the LA Kings into the Stanley Cup playoffs and an unbelievable run, but. In actuality, that was a year you personally had a career year. Your record for 125 points by a left winger still stands to this day. The, the thing that people forget is Wayne actually was hurt most of that 92-93 season, and he only played 45 games. And while Wayne was out, you were wearing the C. Was that clear in a way your, your best NHL season and a moment of real pride for you? Because people could have looked at that and went, okay, that was Wayne's team. But in that particular year, for a big chunk of it, that was Luke's team. Well, it was always Wayne's team. It was like, you know, let's <laughs> just be frank. I appreciate No, I appreciate that. But you carried the team through a time where Wayne wasn't even around. Yeah, at the time, Barry was our new coach. Yeah. And we were told in the summer that Wayne was done for the year and he actually could be done for his career. Yeah. We really didn't know. So um, at the time, Barry uh, went through training camp. And uh, I remember he talked about like it. He wanted to name a captain just to to get going. And he asked me who I thought I should be. And I said, I think it should be Dave Taylor. He goes, that's not who I was thinking of. He goes, really? <laughs> I go, really? He goes, I was thinking about you. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, you know, I, I thought what, what an honor. But we we really believed. We weren't sure Wayne was ever going to come back. And uh, and we, we kind of went on. We were, you know, everybody – kind of counted us out that year and and then we went on and on, on a good run we we played with a lot of emotion behind the Barry what, what people forget too we had three of the youngest defensemen that were up and coming and mm-hmm. Rob Blake Daryl Sidor and Alex Zitnik they were you know three young young kids that were coming up but I think for me personally in my career I think sometime now I look back you never know what it takes to win until you win. Mm-hmm. And for most of my career, coaches would put me on the second line. You know, maybe it had to do with my skating or 
you know, where I was drafted and so, so forth. And then, you know, I would end up playing on the first line or more minutes when we were down a goal or so forth. But this was really the first year where I was given a prominent role on the first line. And I think that's why, like, statistically, it changed a little bit. And uh, now I know that me being on the second line a lot of time was helping the team, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, and probably better than being on the first line some, most year. But that year is really the only year in my career where I was really put in on the first line. Then when Wayne came in, uh, I think it took maybe six, seven games. Then we, we were put together on the line and uh, with Thomas Sandstrom, and it, it worked out real well, but he – you know, that it was always his team. <laughs> Nine goals, 22 points and 24 playoff games that year. You ultimately ended up losing to the Montreal Canadiens uh, in that cup final, the last Stanley Cup won by a Canadian team still to this day. What was that run like for you as a life experience? Uh, it was, uh, it was incredible. I mean, we, uh, you know, you start the first round and next thing you know, you win and, uh, we, we had we played a good way. We played a real fast way. We re, we believed in our team, and I remember going against Toronto. We we thought we had a real good ch- chance about him. I, I'm not sure we we believe it would go to seven games. And I thought we were a little faster than them. But uh, you know they had Doug Gilmore, they had great Wendell Clark, Andrew Chuck. They had a great team, and uh, the best player in the world elevated his game when it counted the most, and that's the reason why we ended up in the finals. I mean it was. It was incredible to, to look back now. And at the time, you're just a player. You you know uh, it's important to win and all you care is about winning. But to look back and go, man, that's incredible what Wayne did. It's absolutely amazing, you know. And uh, he was uh, he was intense, that player. Even against Montreal, he was the best player on both teams. And uh, it's too bad we, we didn't win. Uh, but uh, it certainly was uh, – what Wayne did during those playoffs, coming back from back injury that people thought he might be done was absolutely, was exactly back to the Wayne Gretzky who we're used to seeing in the Edmonton days. He was so much fun to watch, man. Incredible. Uh, so much fun to watch. I mean, it was amazing as, as a broadcaster. And then ultimately I got to know him more on a personal level, but for you to be on the ice surface with him, amazing yeah. thing. Then you became a bit of a journeyman, not by choice. You were traded yeah. to the Pens in 94 and the Rick Tockett deal, yeah. traded to the Rangers in 95, but then traded back to the Kings in 1997 and the Kevin Stevens trade. You were involved in some pretty big deals. Yeah. That was Dave Taylor. You mentioned Dave Taylor. That was Taylor's first move after being named back as the general manager. How important was it for you that that he believed in you so much to come back? And then the success you had, because you had four seasons without scoring 30. Then you had 39, 36, 37 in the next three seasons with the Kings. Yeah, I, it was kind of interesting for me. Like when you have a role on a team and then you, you switch teams, sometimes you're a little like a – the one year in Pittsburgh was a kind of a weird year because we had the lockout and yeah. then uh, uh, Howard Baldwin was, uh, I think he was going to lose a team. So I was, uh, I, I recall talking to my agent and, and actually Howard was really nice. And because I had uh, an opportunity to be a, uh, not a free agent, but to go to arbitration. Yeah. And he, he kind of knew he wasn't going to be able to afford to pay me. So they, they moved me. And then, going to New York, but not really understanding my role. Like, you know, like, uh, and it, it was always hard. And then it's kind of funny. You get in your head. Next thing you know, I got injured for the first time in my career, two or three years in a row. And, um, and when Dave brought me back in LA, I was still injured that first year. And then hope I was able to come back. And uh, I, I was grateful 
to come back and understand what my role was going to be for the team. And uh, no matter what, the team, for me, the team where you start with is a team that believes in you to start yeah. with. So it always felt like that was my team and uh, it felt very comfortable to come back. And I was fortunate. I was able to restart my career after I'd gone through like numerous in injuries. I remember covering the game uh, January 7th, 1999, a special night for you, Luke, your 500th career goal at the forum against the Sabres. What do you remember about that night? And, and that final step onto the precipice of the 500 goal club. Uh, I think I remember the first goal. It was a great pass. If I recall from Rob Blake, kind of mm -hmm. an empty net and then, and then coming in and uh, I just, you know, you're not really thinking I was just playing and, uh, and I got a great pass. Actually it was a new, a young kid, Pavel Rosa. Yeah. And um, I was probably lucky it wasn't Dominic Hasek in night that, in goal that <laughs> night. I think I had a back to back, and uh, and uh, it was just a great feeling to know you hit 500. I don't think like I, I always played the game like trying, like I said, like trying to get better for the next game. But when you hit 500, even though you're a player and you're focused about the next game, it still hits you. You know, you're like, oh my god, I was Gila Flor. Like those were some of the players, like Phil Esposito. And you start like for for a split second. When I was a player, I would take maybe a half hour to say, man, this this was special. But then I would move on. But I have to admit, hitting 500 goals is very special. And it, and and I remember I got a letter from Phil Esposito, and I kept it. Um, it's in a box at, at home, but it says, uh, "Welcome to the club." And I was like. Oh my God, I'm in, the, I'm in a special club. And that was kind of cool to get that, you know. It's so cool when you when you get those notes from your heroes. I mean, the I'm so lucky in this job because I get to meet so many of my, you know, I got to meet Jean Beliveau, who was my hero as a kid growing up, and, uh, you know, Gila Fleurs. And then you get a note from Phil Esposito. Yeah. That's, that's freaking like a cup ring. That's what that yeah, is. It, it is. It's amazing for us uh, kids that love to play the game, you know, and you get in and you get a, you get a, a letter from one of those guys. You're like, oh, my God, this is special. <laughs> hey, you mentioned Dominic Hasek, speaking of special. So let me work a little further down your career now. You you got real close to the Stanley Cup with Wayne in 93, but didn't yeah. win it that year. You're now well into your career. You got an opportunity to go anywhere you want as a UFA. You get a number of great offers, but then you decide to sign with the Detroit Red Wings. You get to join Dominic Hasek on that team. Why? And you took less cash to do it. Why? Why did you make that decision? You know, I remember like uh, when the day before was going to be free agents. I can't remember exactly that time. For some reason, I can't remember if it was noon or 9 a.m. And, and I was. I can tell you it was noon for us Eastern time because I was okay. working. I was on the air. The free agency. <laughs> and I, I think if I'm not mistaken, Dominic got traded to Detroit, correct? Yep. He signed. So. So that the day before I was going over on a call with, with my agent, we were talking about, you know, what team like, uh, you know, he was going to talk to and so forth. And uh, I was more thinking, you know, maybe I should try to stay on the, on the West coast. And, and, uh, but my wife at some point looked at me and she says, well, why, why are you looking at that? I go, well, you know, cause I, I knew, we knew our, our kids were old enough. They were registered school. Yep. For the first year, they would stay in L.A. And, and travel back and forth. So I was thinking, making it easy. And she says, well, who's who do you think is going to be the best team next year? And without looking at her, I was looking at some paper, and I said, well, I think Detroit. She goes, really? Why Detroit? Because 
we had just beaten Detroit that year when I was in L.A. I said, well, they just got Dominic Hasek, and they they already have a good team, and now they got the best goal in the world. She goes, well, why don't you try to go there? So, I had no idea this was the backstory to this. This yeah, is great. So I said, uh, I said, yeah, and then we knew they were looking for a winger, so – and I said, well, because it's Detroit and it's far. She goes, well, it doesn't matter whether I have to fly one hour or five hours. It, it's the same. You know, I'm going to have to go to the airport. I said, well, okay. So literally we, we, we did focus on Detroit. And I remember Pat Brisson, my agent, called uh, Kenny Holland when it started. And they, they actually thought I was signed with L.A. And uh, I, I think we made a deal in, in less than an hour. And wow. that was how that happened for me. Yeah. That's amazing. And then obviously the success, 30 goals, uh, 50 points in your first season with them. And you go to the Stanley cup final, yeah. you win the Stanley cup. And the, the, it still gives me shivers thinking about this. Stevie Eiserman raises the cup, hands the Dominic Hashik. And this is always such an incredible tradition. And then Hashik turns around and gives it to you. What was that moment like for you? It's it's very hard to describe because you you know you your first thing is you're trying to make the NHL like I said to you earlier like I tried to stay in the NHL every day and then you realize at one point ninety three I thought we would come back and be in the final the next day and the next year sorry and we never did LA didn't make the playoffs I think for the next five years and uh, you you don't realize as a player like how hard it is until you win it or. And uh, to actually get the Stanley Cup that day, it's a, it's a, it, it's not a moment I can really describe in words. It's a, just a feeling of incredible, like ultimate. That's playing a game, and and then you seeing all those great teams and great players lifting the cup to be part of that special group was absolutely incredible. Here are a couple of hot, tasty ways to crush the crave. Download the 7 Now delivery app and 7-Eleven will have your hot and delicious Crave Crushers to your door almost before you can say, fuel me up, Sev. You know the Crave I'm talking about. The one that's whispering wings or pizza in your ear right now. For just $11.69, order a large hot from the oven in minutes pepperoni pizza. Add a two liter Coke or Pepsi for $2. 7-Eleven is your go-to for fast delivery of Slurpee, groceries, essentials, meals, snack and treats, 24-7. In conversation with Stanley Cup champion Hockey Hall of Famer Luke Robitaille, this is the 7-Eleven Overtime Podcast. I'm your host, Gino Retta. Uh, you opened this up, Luke, so I want to follow up on this. You've said probably two or three times now in the last few minutes we've been talking, I just wanted a chance to play in the NHL. I just thought it'd be great to be able to score a goal in the NHL. Then you, you hit 500, you win the Stanley Cup. It all came from real humble beginnings. I mean, yeah. every week we have this show and I speak to Hall of Famers every week and invariably the guy was selected first overall, second overall, third overall, almost always the first round. You went 171st overall, Luke. There were some questions about your skating. Um, walk us through that experience for you because it must have been brutal. You actually were sitting in the seats with your dad waiting for your name to be called. What And it just wasn't called round after round after round. What was that like for you? I, I'm not sure it was brutal. I, I think for me, like maybe I've always looked at things where the half is, the, the cup is always half full, you know? And uh, I, I, I do recall that that year though, the draft is in one day and that's the year Mario stood up and then go to the floor and that just seemed to take forever. And then there was a couple breaks through it all. So 
that part was long, but I do recall I had teammates of mine that they were ranked to come out in the third round. They didn't come out. And I remember in the fifth round talking to them and trying to console them and say, it's okay. You know, and I'm like, well, my name's not even there, but I think for me, one scout had talked to me that year. You see what happened is when I played in hall, which is Gatineau now in junior major is a, we would play most of our home games on Thursdays and uh, some Tuesdays and Sundays. Yep. And uh, a couple of times during the year, our coach would uh, give us Mondays off. And and uh, I had a class in the morning. And then uh, my cl- I, I didn't have class in the morning on Tuesdays because I knew we had a lot of home games. So there's a few times where if we get a day off on Monday, I would – do the two hour drive and go meet my dad. We would go watch Mario Lemieux on Monday night because he played cool. in Laval. And, uh, and I remember what being in a game and this one scout comes to me and this old, older gentleman, and he feels my arm. Like as he's coming in, he goes, how are you doing Luke? And I'm like, he goes, what are you doing here? And I didn't speak real good English. I still don't, by the way, but I, and I, and I told that, uh, I told him I, I met him. His name was Alex Smart. He was a, a scout for the Kings. So he says, I like what he, go, he asked me. My dad was next to me, so he kind of helped me translate. And and he was asking me what I was doing there. And I told him, I come to see Mario because I just think he's incredible. And I think he got a kick out of that, that I, on my day off, I would go watch another junior player. And uh, and he, I remember him talking to me about keep playing, even though our team was struggling my first year. And then he met me another time after practice in Hall, that year so that whole year i didn't have an agent there's only one person that talked to me from the nhl was this gentleman alex smart so when it got to the draft i'm like i think the kings will draft me because only one scout talked to me <laughs> so every time the king's team would come on i i thought i was going to come out from the second round on it never happened but what then the rest of the uh, of the, the the next round i never even thought a team was interested in me and uh, so when, when it came to the ninth round and, and I was drafted, uh, you know, for me, I think the most important thing is that I remember clearly telling my dad, my name's on the list. It's up to me wow. now. And I was, that's the way I looked at it. My name's on the list. They're going to have to look at me. So it was up to me what I was going to do. I didn't really think oh, I'm slow. I'm not going to make it or the way things are. I was like, my name is on the list. They're going to have to see me at some point. You know, Good for you, man. That's amazing. But it wasn't like we envisioned. Like you said, that was a different day of the draft. It wasn't like every kid goes down and gets their name called. You put the jersey on. T- tell our audience what your experience was like when your name was finally called around 7 o'clock that night. I, I, it was seven o'clock. I was probably five or six hot dogs down. <laughs> <laughs> great hot dog, by the way. A great best hot dog in the game. I was sitting in the whites. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It wasn't as crowded in those days, but I was sitting in the whites and almost no one in the reds. Uh, you know, the old form was red, yeah. white, and blue. And when I heard my name, I, I almost fell down because it was really steep. And I ran down, and uh, it, for people that remember the old Montreal form, the, the door to get on the ice was really small on the bench. Yep. And it, even though you had no equipment, it was still small, and there was a cop there. And I, I went to get on it, and he goes, uh, what are you doing, sir, in French? And I said, well, I'm, I just got – they named me. I said, "They, I got drafted. And, and the guy says, uh, he's looking at me weird. And Pierre Lacroix was right by the door, 
and he recognized me and he said he said in French and the guy goes no no this kid just got uh, drafted he, and he <laughs> and he said he wasn't my agent but he just said congratulations Luke he goes the LA tables over there so I said thank you so he, the cop let me on and I, I went to the LA table and they must have been on a break because there was no one there except one gentleman his name was uh, John Wolf he was the assistant GM and he looked at me and he goes, yeah, can I help you? Because I was standing next to him. There was no one around me. And I go, you you just drafted me. You drafted me. He goes, really? He goes, what's your name? And I go, Luke Rota. I said, he looks on the list. There's no computer. He looks at me and he sees my name in the ninth pick. He goes, hey, he goes, congratulations. He goes, you're from here? I go, yeah. And I'm trying to do the best English I can, you know. And uh, and he said, he looks under the table and there was a box there. He goes, I don't have any more hats. <laughs> he goes, I don't have anything. He, like, I didn't even know. Like, I wasn't there to get anything. I just, I don't know why I was there. But so he says, uh, he, I'll tell you, I'll show you what I got. So this is. Uh, <laughs> Luke, this is the best. So I'll show you. So he gave me the pin that was on his jacket. That's so, hilarious. And when my dad passed away, I found it in the, in the house. So I, I, I took it back and I framed it. So. He literally took the pin off his jacket, gave it to me, and I kept that pin. So it's pretty cool. And uh, and then he said, he said, "Do you have an agent?" I go, "No, I, I don't have any." He says, "Why don't you?" And he gives me a white piece of paper. He said, "Write down your address and your phone number." And he says, "We'll send you all the information for camp." And I remember I gave it to him. And then I'm I'm in. We took a subway back home, and I told my dad, "I I sure hope I wrote the the, the right address." You know, I guess I was like, and then July went by. I never got anything. I'm, I'm telling my dad, I think I wrote the wrong address. I, I was really nervous about that. As it turned out, I got the invite in August, and that was my draft story. Luke, I got to tell you, I've, I've been television now for 40 years. That's the best draft day story I have ever heard. That was <laughs> unbelievable. I didn't know. I knew. Do little bits and pieces of it, but I didn't. I didn't know it all. But I love your confidence, Luke. I love the fact that you said my name is on the list, and you took that. You became the second player, just the second player in NHL history, who had a thousand points after being drafted in the ninth round or later. Did that just? Did that entire experience just make you that much more determined to say you guys did the right thing by bringing me to your team? I don't think I ever thought like that. I, I really. Like when I hit a thousand points, I knew I had to get ready for the next game. You know, I'm, I was never, I never stopped on anything. Like maybe it's the reason I got good numbers because I was constantly looking to, to move on, you know, I, and to a certain degree, sometimes I regret it. I go, I don't think I really enjoyed, you know, the, those moments. Like I didn't really take the time, uh, but I never thought, oh, I'm in the ninth round. I'm going to show them I'll get it. It was more like, I want to beat this guy. I want to be better than this guy. I want to help my team win. I was always that way. You certainly did that, man. And you did it in L.A., a place where celebrity was huge. I, I have to ask you about your acting career, Luke. We've seen uh, we've seen ah. Wayne do some acting on SNL, and we've seen other players. Jeremy Roenick has showed up sometimes. But, man, the list of your accomplishments. Uh, let's see. You did How I Met Your Mother. You did Sudden Death, Mighty Ducks, Phineas and Ferb. <laughs> You are an actor, my friend. What was that like? What was that, Mister Celebrity, Mister LA? For the record, I am terrible. The, the The only reason is I'm in a lot of shows over time is because over the years I've gotten to know people, and they'll call me to go, "Hey, we're doing a hockey guy. Can you do it for us?" And I'll be like, "Ah." Oh. 
Okay, I'll do it. Because I'll tell you why I don't like acting. Because everything about acting is hurry up and wait. You get to your trailer and you just sit there for two hours sometimes. And and it's just, I hate it. Like it's it's And then they'll shoot something and you think it's over. And then they'll turn off the camera and redo it. And they'll say one more time. So it's, you got to do it seven, eight times. It's terrible. I can give you a quick story on it. Over time, as I learned, because I hate the, I hate the fact that you, you got to wait so long. So, yes. the last few years yes. that when I've gotten calls for to do mm. to do movies or TV show, if it's friends, most of the time I do it for friends. I'll say I'll do it, but not that I think that I'm Robert De Niro. <laughs> but if I get there, can I shoot my scene and leave? You know, because it's just usually one scene, and I say. Don't tell your guys are writing a script not to give me these big words because my I grew up speaking French, so I can't do it. So I said, if you can help me with that, I'll do it. Usually I'll say no to them a couple of times. So then they could really like a, like a set it up. Right. But I did that to my friend who was the producer of the show Bones with Dave yeah, Boreanaz. Yeah. So I, I literally told him and I kept saying no. And I kept trying to give him other hockey players. And he, finally he said, yes. So quick story for you. So. The day that I got there, they knew I had to leave by 3 p.m. And I think they made me show up at 11. And they said, okay, we'll do a quick rehearsal on the ice. And Dave Boreanaz, who I know, but he's, he's not my best friend, but I know him, you know, like, a, and he comes on the ice for rehearsal and I'm not fully equipped. And I was all happy. I'd practiced my lines. And for anybody that's done work in, in Hollywood, they, there's different color for every script because they get yep. rewritten every day. So I had a green color. And I got my little notes and I'm all proud of myself because I had learned them the night before. My wife's trying to help me. She goes, you're too stiff and I'm trying to work <laughs> at it. But my lines were very short too. They were really good to me. And I get on the ice and there's a bunch of people and Dave skates on the ice. He's got his Flyers jersey. He's a player. He likes to play hockey. Flyer guy like as his character. And he comes on and, he, and he, he's an actor. He's really good. He, and he looks at me and he's miserable. He goes, hey, look how you're doing. He goes, Sorry, he goes, I'm in a bad mood. He goes, my back really hurts. He goes, we filmed all day yesterday. He goes, I don't know how you guys do it, being in those skates all day. He goes, I'm really sorry. Let, let's just get through this rehearsal. Then we'll shoot because my back is bad. So then I get really nervous because I think he's going to be the way I've seen him in the game. Where he's like, hey, Luke, how are you doing? Yeah. But he's he's miserable. And now it's I'm in his environment. And we start the rehearsal. As we get started, he pulls out like a pink thing. Mine, I think, was green. Looks at it, he goes, what do you mean? You don't have the new lines? I'm like, what do you mean the new lines? And then I get really nervous and he <laughs> and he starts screaming at everybody. We're in the middle of a rink, there's echo. And he's screaming, he's like a real jerk. And he's screaming at everybody but me. Like about how disorganized they are, how dumb the show is. And now this poor little girl leans over and gives me the pink slip, like the pink uh, like piece of paper. And now it's like, instead of being two pages, like three or four pages, I'm like, what the hell? But I'm like, now I'm nervous. I'm really nervous. I'm next to him. It's uncomfortable. You know, I've never been in that environment. And I look at my line and his first line, let's say my first line was like, his name is Boot. And the show was like, how you doing, Boot? Boots. Yeah. Instead of that was like, how you doing, Boot? Uh, the greatest uh, investigator in the history. And it, the, my script is this long. And I'm like, I got like, I got to say a full paragraph. I'm like, holy shit. I got to go back and learn this. I, I'm never going to be, I, everything's going through my mind, pure fear. And then he answered, go, yes. So, so then 
my next, I turned up in my next thing is like this long. It's like, as the great Nostradamus, he, they got all big words. And I'm like reading and I'm like, and I'm like freaking out. And then I, by the third paragraph that was longer and longer, I look up and someone's got a little smirk. I go, F you guys, they totally had me. If they would have had a bloopers camera that day, it would have been the greatest blooper because she fear and sweat on a man. That's hilarious. Like, funny the way they did it to me before the scene. Busted pranks by David Boreanaz, the hockey fan. That's hilarious, man. You've had some great experiences in your life. I remember, I really appreciate you telling all these great stories. These are great stories, Luke. I remember, I remember one of the great moments and I was so happy about this as your career was winding down. You got back to the LA Kings. You had three different stints with the LA Kings and they gave you the C for your last game on April 15th, 2006. Uh, Matthias Nordstrom was actually the captain, but they gave it to you and you did the speech after the game and was, you did a last lap and a goodbye. What was that entire experience like for you as you kind of skated off for the final time there? It was a, it was a little bit of a blur. Uh, I was shocked when Maddie did that. It certainly was a big honor. Um, I think for me, uh, I remember around Christmas that year thinking, I think that's it, you know, and then suddenly everything that sometimes you think bothers you as a player, little things, suddenly everything was easy. It was a lot more fun for me. So I got to really enjoy the last uh, three, four months. Um, but certainly that day when Maddie came on and then to have the opportunity to say thank you to the great fans of LA. And I kind of feel like I grew up with them. You know, I was there before the Gretzky era. I was there during the great Gretzky era. And, and uh, we had some good runs after never, never came really close to, to winning at all, but it certainly was absolutely incredible to have an opportunity as an athlete to say goodbye to everyone. But you did get a chance to win two more Stanley cups in you know, in leadership with the LA Kings, you slipped into a role right out of your retirement, right into the head office. Um, now you're a team president with the LA Kings. What was it like bringing the Stanley cup to LA and actually winning it in those two years in 12 and 14? It, it was truly an incredible feeling because I, I remember when I, the first year I kind of took like a part-time role and learning the, the culture of the LA Kings and so forth. And we had hired Dean Lombardi and Dean came in with a very specific goal. Like he was not going to trade any picks. He was going to build the built it from within. He, he always said he want to have players that would, wouldn't mean something to have the, to, to wear the, the crown of the Kings. And I meant everything to me. So I understood that I was very fortunate. I got to play in Detroit and understood that we always talk about culture but a culture of an organization is when everyone speaks the same language. Everyone's doing a job towards one goal. And so from my standpoint, where I was really involved on, on the other side of the organization, that was really my goal to make sure our fans understood what we were doing and, un, and our staff understood the direction that we want to be. You never know you're going to win the cup. But I know one thing, if you don't try to win it, if you don't try to build it that way, you're never winning it for sure. If you just try to make the playoffs, you're probably going to make the playoffs a few times, but you're not going to win at all. <laughs> you know, you got to try and mean yeah. it. And we were lucky that we were able to, we had a great leader in Dean like that that really built the organization towards that goal. And at the same time, we we changed the internal culture of the way we spoke as, a, as an organization. And you changed the respect factor of an entire portion of the 
the United States. Hockey's always been big in Minnesota. It's always been big in the U.S. Northeast and uh, in New York State and Philadelphia and like, but not in L.A. I mean, Wayne obviously was a huge part of that. Obviously, the single most the biggest factor. But you've been there. You saw the the team go to its first Cup final. You've been in management to the first two Stanley Cups. Can you believe all that's happened in that region? with that organization, with the game of hockey. And now there's thousands, tens of thousands of kids in that region who play hockey now. Oh, yeah. Like, it, it's incredible the growth we've had over the last uh, – I mean, you could say from the Gretzky era, new rinks were built. And then after that, the Ducks have done a really good job on, on developing hockey from within at the base. We've done a lot of the same. Uh, we make sure we're opening new rinks. and there, I mean, there's so many kids – drafted or playing NCAA or junior major right out of California today. It's, it's incredible. I mean, I remember a few years ago when we, we were fighting to get the AHL to come on the West coast. And that was like, we got a lot of pushback and then we finally got it done today. We have 10 teams on the West coast, you know, playing in that division. It's, it's incredible. So, and some of the most successful franchise in the AHL are on the West coast, you know, and it's, uh, and it really shows you the growth of the game, what's happened on the West Coast for us. Unbelievable. Luke, You, what a great storyteller, buddy. I've known you for decades, and to hear you tell these stories is great. Uh, you've been so generous with your time. I want to play a little game with you, okay? we do okay. Each week we have our guests on. We play five quick facts that most people wouldn't know about you. Okay. So I'll give you just quick hit, hit quick questions, and you give me your answers, okay? I'll try. <laughs> Number one, who was your favorite team during your career and why your favorite teammate sorry who was your favorite teammate during your career and why so hard with teammates because there's so many you know like uh you know if Manny Nordstrom Rob Blake Tony Granato you know Grants I mean, come on I, I was to gonna say I got Grants online too here Luke I got to play with my idol Mark Messier Steve Eisenman <laughs> that's hilarious that's good okay uh did you have a pregame ritual or superstition that you always like relied on uh Yes, yes and no. Like what worked, I didn't change, you know, so so things would change even sometimes the way where I drove to the rink. But there's one thing that I did throughout my whole career that very, very few people notice that that's the one thing that's a for sure is it happened in midget AAA because I saw there was a player I played with that taped his stick every every period. So I started doing that. And one year, one game, we uh, I used to take my stick white, you know, every game in midget AAA. And then the second period, the, the trainer did, ran out of white tape. So I taped it black. And then I got a couple goals that period. And then he had the, the white tape. He found the box. For the third, and I taped it back in white. So for the rest of my career, including junior and NHL, I've had every first period white, second period black, and third period white. So if you ever see a picture of me as a player with black tape, you know it was taken in the second period. That's hilarious. Okay. What team other than your own do you like to watch today? Uh, I've always liked watching Pittsburgh because I'm a big fan of Crosby. You know, it's always been fun. Uh, obviously, in the, in the heydays of the Blackhawks, that was a real fun team to watch. And, you know, no matter what, I'm always going to be a fan of the game. So if I have a chance to watch uh, the McDavid or Pasternak, and I'll watch these guys. I'll watch these teams. All right. You're an actor, Mr. Big Shot. So what's your favorite movie of all time? Uh, it's 
tough. I, I, the one movie, I'm not sure it's, well, it's definitely one of my favorite, but I got a lot of favorite. M my wife would say it's got to be a chick flick, which I, I kind of liked all of that. But the one movie that I always stop if I see it, if I'm on the road, it's Shawshank Redemption. Okay. Yeah. Good, good call. All right. Last question. What's harder, being a player or being in management today? Oh, it's a lot easier to being a player because you only live the day, the moment, mm -hmm. you know, and you only worry about the next game. When you're in management, you got to think about two years from now and three years from now, and you got to build plan. And and uh, the hardest thing for us in management is to be patient. And uh, and uh, and that probably it's a lot harder, I think, on the management side because you you got so many more things to worry about. You've done it all, my friend. A Stanley Cup as a player, two Stanley Cups in management. Uh, if you go to the Staples Center, my friends, after hearing the great stories from Luke Robitaille, look for the statues right there at the main entrance. The right one, Wayne Gretzky, right beside Luke Robitaille, and deservedly so. Luke, it has been great catching up with you again, my friend. All the success to you. I couldn't be happier for you. Let's get together again and tell some stories again. This has been a lot of fun. Anytime. It's great talking to you. Hockey Hall of Famer, Stanley Cup champion as a player, twice in management, Luke Robitaille. The Overtime Podcast is proudly presented by 7-Eleven. Before leaving the rink, order your favorite Slurpee, fresh 100% premium Arabica coffee, hot from the oven pizza and wings, pint of ice cream, or even a carton of milk, a dozen eggs, and a loaf of bread from the 7Now app and Team 7-Eleven. We'll have your order ready for pickup 24-7. Hey, if you missed any parts of the show, don't worry. Visit our website at OvertimePodcast.ca where you can both listen and subscribe to future shows. 7-Eleven's Overtime Podcast can be found on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Until next week, I'm Gino Retta saying so long, hockey fans, and thanks for joining us on the 7-Eleven Overtime Podcast. Here are a couple of hot, tasty ways to crush the crave. Download the 7Now delivery app and 7-Eleven will have your hot and delicious Crave Crushers to your door almost before you can say, fuel me up, Sev. You know the Crave I'm talking about. The one that's whispering wings or pizza in your ear right now. For just $11.69, order a large hot from the oven in minutes pepperoni pizza. Add a two liter Coke or Pepsi for $2. 7-Eleven is your go-to for fast delivery of Slurpee, groceries, essentials, meals, snack and treats 24-7.